This is Swampside Chats, a podcast where every week communists sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. This week, we sit down to discuss the fundamentals of revolutionary communism and the immediate program of the revolution, two texts by Amadeo Bordiga. I'm Jake. I'm with Communist League Tampa, and joining me tonight is Lexi. Hey, it's Lexi. Tag yourselves. I'm Modernizer. Rosa. Uh, Rosa, practicing organic centralism by becoming the Borg. And Donald. Hey, it's Donald, the falsifier. Hey. So, uh, we're talking about Bordiga. Uh, Doing this a while, we haven't really discussed Bordiga yet, so might as well do that. Uh, I believe the piece that we read was... We kind of brought him up during uh, left-wing communism. I'm yeah. I'm talking about him a little bit, but not that much. We never did, like, a deep dive on Bordiga. It, like... Yeah, but it's like, is weird because there's kind of, like, this weird cult of personality about him online. And it's 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 something that Bordiga himself probably never would have imagined happening. But well, not only wouldn't have imagined, but he explicitly hated cults of personality. Yeah, he did. Even though you know, I don't know. There's some culty stuff to his some of his ideas, I think. But besides that, I mean, <clears throat> it's just it's so weird that Bordiga memes are a thing. But that's yeah. that's left book in the 21st century. No, I was gonna ask. Like, didn't he get into like a period where he was like experimenting with like hallucinogens and shit like that? That's a rumor. <laughs> that's okay. that's it's it's people talk about that, but I don't know if it's true. Okay, because I can see maybe like in like the depths of like a super trip, like imagining you know seeing like visions of like the future, uh, internet yeah. cult of personality that's been developed around him. But <laughs> I mean, uh, other it, than that, it would have been highly ironic because from what I understood, he was a little bit big on. Uh, you know, proletarian morality, or at least I don't know about morality, but well, like he, he wasn't. Really he hated drugs. drugs and alcohol. He gave candy out at his meetings to keep people from smoking or drinking at meetings because he thought it was a poison to the proletariat. Well, gave out was, candy. Yeah, <laughs> he, he handed out candy to workers so they wouldn't smoke at meetings. That's not any better for you. That shit rots your teeth. Yeah, yeah, I was gonna say if he was alive today, he would he would let that happen. Yeah, exactly. Like, he's, not being in, he's not being invariant enough. So I guess before we get started, we can kind of just talk about who the hell was Bordiga and why should we give a fuck about him. I just and... have one more thing to say about this really quick. Um, about the whole like internet. Like it's interesting how, you know, because he was never like canonized the same way like the iconography of him that exists is kind of, there's not a lot to go on in terms of like imagery. There's like a couple of pictures that look like driver's license photos. There's one where he's really like pissed off in an interview. Like he just looks completely pissed off all the time. And there's another, yeah, and then there's another one where it looks like somebody just like 
told him a funny joke or something like that. That's all that exists. Um, but like, it's not like because with Lenin, you get like all these like you know, all these sort of Soviet realist artists create like these really like ennobling like stylized portraits of him giving some kind of speech or like looking ahead to the communist future. But with like Bordiga, it's like much more chill. Yeah, there's that one where he looks super pissed off, grumpy and old, and then there's a young, dashing, solemn Bordiga. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, Bordiga when he's younger is more dashing and handsome. He looks just like a like kind of like a young communist militant. But um, yeah, basically Bordiga was the original leader of the Italian Communist Party, but uh, he eventually lost his um. He eventually got kicked out of the. Communist Party in the common turn by Stalin and his henchmen. And um, he kind of developed a, a critique of Stalinism from the perspective of trying to create a more authentic Leninism, kind of similar to um, kind of similar to Trotsky. And yeah. in a way, kind of actually similar to the neocots today, I guess, as people call it. People like McNair and Lars Lee, how they're trying to trying to create a more authentic Leninism as opposed to Stalinism, but both are very different. You know, Bordig is a very different kind of Leninist than Lars Lee's Lenin, you know. Well, significantly trying to do the imminent critique of Leninism um, from, like, from before the period of, of Bolshevization. And so he was kind of trying to, like, when a lot of people say uh, Leninism, you know, they're referring to either 1921, like, uh, what was it, like, Third Congress, Leninism, or, like, Stalinism or something, or even Trotskyists that are supposed to be not Stalinist, Leninists have yeah that, that kind well, of back. Bordiga's clearly, like, a, a classic early commenter in Leninist, you know? He's not, like, a Stalinist, obviously. In fact, he told Stalinist, Stalin, that he was the grave digger of the revolution to his face. That's my and, favorite anecdote about him. Yeah, there's also a funny anecdote about him in uh, Victor Sergei's book, where he's like leading students through the halls of like where the commenter meeting was being held, like singing songs. I always imagined him being played by like uh, John Belushi, or in like a biopic in that moment. I mean, yeah, if there is always uh, on online, a lot of people say Danny DeVito. I could really see either. Yeah. 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 But it's uh, it's just like it's it's funny how Bordiga has this weird online cult following of people who really don't actually seem to have much politically in common with him, because from this piece he really comes off as just a very, a very much a Leninist. Well, th I think what they like about him is his the very hard line Marxism kind of anti movementism, anti kind of everything that. This has been associated kind of with like Trotskyism in terms of like whatever's kind of going on at the moment. He's like, no, we have a specific program that's that's fought for by a communist party, and that's it. And everything else is just petty bourgeois. Yeah. The specific moment I think where Bordiga starts to retain his or starts to have his contemporary significance is there was a revival of councilism in France in 1968. And within the people that were opposed to the Stalinist left, so like that kind of, you know, ultra left um, kind of wave 
of neo-councilism, there arose like an imminent critique. And the person that had previously been the sort of foil for councilism within left communism was Bordiga. And so these French authors started to reread Bordiga and develop the critique of councilism because it's a sort of ideology of self-management. For instance, Cornelius Castoriadis, I'm not sure how to pronounce his name. Um, yeah, Bordiga constantly polemicized with Castoriadis and yeah, his group. Castoriadis has a whole theory of how really communism is worker self-management. And Bordiga's main contribution there is, you know, self-management of what? You can have self-managed capitalism. Is that what we want? Yeah, and that's that's kind of the point of that's one of the big points that he makes in this um in this article is is, is a critique of self management. So I was thinking we could just kind of go through the article because I mean, can we? It's kind of long. Um, it's it's not that bad because well, not... he repeats himself a lot too. To be honest, yeah, yeah, well, he's a Leninist after all. Because um, in the end, he basically talks about the, uh, he has three categories, deniers, falsifiers, and modernizers. And <laughs> the deniers are just straight up like anti-communists, and they've been uh, completely owned by Marx, basically. He, they've already delivered a, he's already delivered a knockout blow. Dunked. And so these anti, you know, anti-communists, they have nothing interesting to say. But then he says, you know, there's the falsifiers, and they're basically people who claim to be Marxist, but they water down the Marxist doctrine. They're, you know, like the revision, like the Bernsteins, the Kotskys, the, you know, the reformists and the revisionists, and also, yeah, it, I guess, the anarchists and the syndicalists, and you know, the workerists as well. And then there's the modernizers. We're the worst. Yeah, he hates the modernizers because they claim to be modernizing Marxism by developing it, but really they're just um, ruining Marxism by betraying its core tenets, you know. Which you, you got to admit, a lot of bullshit goes on in the name of modernizing Marxism, but yeah, on the one hand, so, on the other hand, I mean, come on, come on. Though. I mean, <laughs> I can see his frustration with modernizers I can, I can because there's a lot of, but he himself although claiming invariance is against parliamentary activity and has yeah, to... Yeah, it's, has, it's really has silly. Be, ha, he, I mean, he's doing that on the basis of a kind of party of civil war, but that is different than Marx and Engels' conception of what a revolutionary party should be. Yeah. And so he is kind of, in a sort of left-com decadence way, uh, a sort of modernizer. Yeah, that's the thing that Bordiga claims to be invariant with Lenin, but he himself didn't agree with Lenin, doesn't agree with Marx's politics. And so I guess it's, but I mean, invariance really doesn't mean agreeing with everything that Marx once said. I mean, what it means really... is that there's really like history is a struggle between two groups, uh, true Marxists and the Philistines. And <laughs> Bordega gets to decide who that is. Yeah. Yeah. You kind of see this in Lenin also, like he mm -hmm. takes a very schoolmaster like approach oh, to yeah. debating people like you're you're gonna get slapped with a ruler by lenin and bordiga if you try to debate them yeah it's yeah. really annoying when like modern day marxists also try to like copy that style it speaks to the worst aspects of marxism it speaks oh, yeah. to marxism as 
partially as a sort of educated class domination. <laughs> well, it kind yeah. of also, it just plays into this whole thing you get with left comms where it's like, there's everyone who agrees with me, and then there's everyone who disagrees with me. And they're there's all the lie. And 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 there's and there's the uh you know and they're all the revisionists and they're the enemy they're the left of capital they're you know they're all evil and you know but us who are pure and and know the truth uh, you know and well, have and the your theoretical interpretation of Marx you know we're the true bearers of the proletarian flag and everyone else is just you know to be fair though to be there. Fair, though, like Marx and Engels themselves were actually worse about this than like Lenin and Bordiga, in my opinion, because they weren't they weren't school. Te- they were they were just straight up kids. They were like it was. I mean, Marx was like a law time. school dropout at the same time, though, like they were willing to work with people like LaSalle and even yeah. people like Bakunin, whereas like you can't really imagine a modern day. Left calm working with someone like Lasalle or Bakunin. Yeah, but they were total dicks. Like, uh, didn't Mark swipe Bakunin's Hegel library? And like, I mean, and Angles, like, the yeah, guy who, they, they were, they were. You're right. And, and like Angles, the guy who introduced Angles to communism was a sort of Zionist named uh, Moses Hest. And Angles became a Zionist afterwards, right? Yeah, yeah. But but I, I'm just saying, like. Angles fucked his wife. Like he's a dick. Yeah, yeah. And from I mean, I mean, from what I've heard about that, it was from what I've heard about that. It, I don't think it was actually consensual. From what oh, I remember God. reading about it, too. Oh, yeah. that's okay, really awful. I mean, okay, so shit, lords, we can't read any of this. <laughs> God damn it! Why do why do all our heroes have to be? Yeah. Anyway, back back to um. <laughs> How do we end up talking about this anyway? Because Bordiga was a dick, and and he's in an invariant Marxist asshole. Yeah, he, he is. Um, I mean, carrying the torch. Well, let's just be honest. Like his whole kind of th- argument that, like, listen, if you try to modernize Marxism, but you deny, you know, the the basic like theoretical political, you know, if you deny the basic political tenets of Marxism, like if you deny the dictatorship of the proletariat. And you deny the need for a class party, like any kind of modernization that you do of Marxism, he argues, is basically just going to be a bunch of bullshit. But Bordega goes further than that, though. He says that party and state are actually what's essential to Marxism and not class. Yeah. Well, he says that the the party is how the class becomes an actor in history. He says that you can't seek the class outside of a party. And so the idea that, um, though he says that if you try to defang the um, party, you're actually defanging the class because the, the party is basically the collective body through which the proletariat becomes a, a conscious actor in history. Yeah, now, is, is the party like an invariant feature of capitalist society or does it only emerge under certain conditions? What is the party exactly? Um... This is, yeah, this is where Bordiga gets kind of mystical and vague. Because in my opinion, the party is, you know, it, it's, Bordiga, he talks about the historical party and the formal party, I guess, where the historical party is like the party before it formally exists, and then historical party becomes the formal party. And so, 
it's kind of this weird, like vague mystical idea where the party kind of always exists as a potentiality of the class and its general struggles. And so there's, and then that's one thing that a lot of the communists kind of take from, but. Well, that has disastrous consequences if you sort of look at it today. Well, yeah, it means the, if there's no party, there's no class, is basically what Bordiga's saying, which means that there's no class today. Well, there's and literally, literally state. He literally states that they're declass. It declasses them if there is no party. I think there's some truth to that, though, because a class is not just a statistical body, but it's a actor in history. And so if the class is completely incapable of acting as a class in history, then in a way the class doesn't really exist. It's just atomized individuals. And so for Bordiga, the purpose of the party and the reason why you always have to have a party is because it's the only way that atomized individuals draw different sections of the class and cooperate in a way as to act as a class. Yeah, that's but- why factory councils and unions can't replace the party because they only represent certain economic sections of the class. I know, yeah. I know this, this was written 60 years ago, but I can't get over what this implies because there's literally a bourgeois sociologist. I shouldn't say anyway. There's a, there's a sociologist named uh, Michael Mann that uh, analytical Marxist Eric Olin Wright goes into polemic with because Michael Mann more or less agrees with that principle that, you know, if there's no organized collective actors, then who gives a shit about the class that's just floating around out there? Like that doesn't matter. And he actually uses it to argue against Marx's class analysis in favor of other class analyses that are more empirically relevant. And so Eric Owen Wright, in order to defend Marx's class analysis, ends up being like, no, it matters. Even if they're not organized, collected actors yet, it still matters. And and so well, and that's kind of the autonomous position as well. But even when the class isn't organized in any institutional way, it still matters, and it's still struggling, even at individual level. And so you have to kind of get deep into the class and find these like small little circles of resistance, and that's where kind of class collectivity comes from. You're thinking and too not politi- institutions. You're thinking too politically, though, because if if this if that principle is right, there's just no proletariat. Well, yeah, that's the point: is that if there's no political expression, then there is no class. If well, there's I guess no what he's basically saying, yeah, he's basically saying if there's if there's no party, there's no proletariat, because but, you know but that's, proletariat that's is true. just a group of individuals in society who are exploited. They don't constitute themselves as a class. Yeah. Well, also- but if but if that's true, you know, then why be a Marxist? There's no proletariat. Like, and the reason well, because the, the goal of are- a Marxist is to form the proletariat as a class, is what he says. And that's why he points out in the manifesto, Marx talks about how, you know, the proletariat has to form itself as a class. And he says it's this is in this is basically building the party is is how the proletariat forms itself as a class. And so the class doesn't always exist because the class can become atomized and decomposed, basically, and defanged and 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 become declassed basically by having no collectivity and no sense of organization so if we do go by this definition that Bordica is pointing out yes there is no proletariat today but that doesn't necessarily mean that there's no you know role for communists to play per se it just it seems it just seems like a way of denying the reality of class 
is just to me. Well, I mean, like, like, go on. Um, it, it takes like the sociological element out of class of like Marxist Marxist class. And I think it goes back to like Lenin and Luke Koch specifically, like it in sort of like a revolt against like the sort of like what was perceived as orthodox Marxism being heavily deterministic. They basically pushed in the other way and it became sort of weirdly overly voluntaristic. And the idea of conceiving the proletariat as like only being only really existing if it was politically active and the role of the vanguard and the party was to make it exist through their political action was well, sort of been, a part of that push. It depends on what you mean by like existence. You know what I mean? Like, and it, 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 it you know, because it, you know, it exists like it, it, it subsists at like this sort of level of existence in the economy, but whether it actually has like the coherence matter on like the world historical stage you know what i mean it really all depends on where you're looking um because it, it also kind of depends on what you're trying to do like bordiga basically believes that only a political party seizing power and implementing a program to transition to socialism is really the only way to fundamentally change anything important and is the only way the only like i guess political goal that he's interested in and so yeah, looking at the proletariat from that perspective makes sense in that context. Uh, you know, like, it makes sense, but it makes sense in a way I'm not entirely comfortable with. Like, this is a guy that's apologizing for bureaucratic centralism and has a complete oh, indifference yeah. to hierarchy and, like, cr- critiques of hierarchy as being part of class critique and a complete indifference to democracy, a disdain for democracy. Yeah, like, that is true. This is this oh, yeah. is a dane honestly Leninism in all of its forms I hate to say this someone sympathetic to the revolution but ends up becoming this Lukashian ideology of dominance over the proletariat in exactly the way Bakunin thought Marxism would go it fucks me up I don't agree I mean, with that at all but I mean this is you know like I said Bordiga is trying to find a more authentic Leninism but what he understands as Leninism is almost a caricature of Leninism. Yeah, I was about to... It's basically, like, all the worst elements that are of, like, post-1921 Leninism. It's like, like Cominternism, almost. Like, it's not even Leninism. Yeah. So much. It's, like, it's, like, it's basically, like, the ideology of the Comintern. Honestly... Before- Honestly, as a theorist, he's actually worse than Stalin. I'm gonna just put it out. There. No he's way. Actually, <laughs> I, that's I mean, a, that's, no, that's, pretty, that's hard. That's, that's some harsh. good trolling, Rosa. That's some good trolling. That, that, that's, that's gonna that's gonna rustle the aftermath, Jimmy's. For that sure. just rustled my Jimmy's. My Jimmy's are rustled. No, but I, I mean, mean, let's no. just face it. Like there is, I think Lexi is on this. I mean, there is some deeply authoritarian, like aspects of what Bordigo is saying that the class doesn't exist outside the party. You know, I kind of was just—I kind of was just playing devil's advocate by well, saying I, that I, I agree with I this analysis because I, I actually don't agree with you. I think the class does exist as a sociological thing beyond the party, and but there's two—I feel like there's two extremes. There's an extreme what the autonomists and anarchists kind of have, where the class is just this—you know—this objective economic thing, and whatever the subjective desires of the class are. Are the class's objective interests, 
Whereas on the other hand, you have Bordiga who says that the class is the party. And if there's no party, there's no class. And the, you know, and well, I so, think a lot, a lot of the, what's questionable here comes down to his conception of like, yeah, more concretely, like what is the party exactly? Like, and like, how does it relate to the class? Like, I, that's something I still don't entirely understand because he seems to define the party or his interest in the party seems to be more its relationship to like program argues that it's like a, it, and that for him, like the program is um, an expression of not only its goals, but also its activity in overthrowing capitalism. Is that, is that correct? Well, my understanding is that for Bordiga, the program is essentially is basically the party is grouped around the program and the program represents the objective historical interests of the class. And so by grouping the class around this program that represents its objective historical class interests, then you know you're forming the real authentic class party. Because the argument is, and I I I think there's some truth to this that like class interests are not something that are subjectively determined, but they're something that are objectively determined from an abstract analysis of history. That makes right. Sense. So, but how how does how does one go from being a party to the party? See, that's, I think that's another problem with Wardiga is that he doesn't really understand like the process of legitimization politically because he's an anti-democrat. And so it's like, well, if the party's strong enough to take power, it takes power. It doesn't matter whether it has legitimacy or not. So yeah. is it like adherence, basically the seizure of power and like adherence to Marxist doctrine is what makes a party the party? Yeah, I think that's that is kind of what he's saying, I think. Yeah. And keep it's, in mind, it's by having the most correct adherence to Marxist doctrine, by I, like tapping yeah. into the true invariant program of history, the party like, can claim its authenticity, I think. Yeah, and keep yeah. in mind, this is no like peaceful struggle for hegemony. This is a party of tr- civil war. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Armed yeah civil he, calls war. It, he, he directly calls it totalitarian. And basically yeah. to go against the will of the party you're going against the proletariat that's the thing that's the that's the major problem with this sort of voluntaristic uh, conception of the proletariat as being like only defined by the its political existence well it, yeah like, exactly. and having that political consist existence be tied directly to the party well, it's, the thing is that, you know, you can be a Maoist and do that, basically take and say, well, you know, we're, we're Red Guards, you know, Tampa, and we, we represent the historical interests of the proletariat, even though we're a group of five people with AKs, but because we have the correct, like, political line that we have derived from years of studying the Shining Path, you know, our armed guerrilla action is, like, you know, part of the class struggle. Like, you can take this little ridiculous... You know, it's, it's it's not ridiculous in the sense that it perfectly mirrors where class, like class politics, was an intervention and a, a response to nationalist politics. So instead of the will of the nation and the people, we're talking about you know the will, the interests of the class. And I mean, the the will of the class is even more so, like a Rousseauian kind of thing. But interests, I feel like. As long as you can still include sociology, you can actually do something about class interests. As long as you talk about the class character of a state, you can talk about interests. And if things are set up in the interests of people within a certain 
sociological designation. I think there's room for that. But Bordiga systematically blocks out every possible way. He he even says there's really nothing about the form of workers' organizations that has anything to do with the content. And I mean, you might say just because something is yeah. democratic doesn't mean workers are in control of it. But I, I don't think you can say the converse that like, you know. Yeah, I just, I don't buy this whole idea that, you know, form doesn't matter at all and really it's just the content and you know no matter what form something takes all that really matters is like what the true content is but it's like you can't act like there's no relationship between the form and the content well yeah i mean it's the word content though which is funny too yeah like a lot if if basically his arguments were true about like the content being the the form of the party not mattering and only the content mattering, that a lot of the old social democratic parties would actually be, like, just the his, the party, like, just, like, the his sort of communist party, really. Because they, they're they filled with workers. They're filled with workers. They're, but they might have the wrong line, because yeah, only, no, yeah, only 10 people program, sitting in a room it. in Italy, they, only they know who what the proletariat really Oh, is. right, right. They yeah. have the objective. See, it's the opposite the because, yeah, this is how the ten people sitting in a room with a dog, like <laughs> this, this is how they think that they are of a vanguard rather than you know the actual mass party of the proletariat, which well, in this time would be the Italian Communist Party, which had a social. So you have to put this in context. At this time, the Italian Communist Party is a mass workers' party, right? But it has a social patriotic program. It has a reformist program. It does have it's, the wrong program. And it has the wrong program. So it's it's so this is why Bordiga is like putting so much emphasis on like having the right program and the right party. Because if it doesn't have the right program, it's not actually the communist party. It doesn't actually you can only represent the the you know the interests of the class if you do have the right program. Otherwise you're simply just mobilizing the class to integrate into the nation. And so there is some truth to this, I think. We just so, have to... Yeah, I guess his it. his work bears the mark of a bureaucracy in exile, kind of like Trotsky. But I think he's... I mean, you know, maybe because he never got to wield leadership of a Red Army, uh, he didn't get to do as many things to compromise his re- revolutionary legacy. And so we can read him in a different way than we can read Trotsky, I suppose. I mean, I don't read him very much differently than I read Trotsky, to be honest. Like, I see him as a very similar figure. I have to admit. He's a Red Army, but honestly, Trotsky's a better theorist and a better writer and more nuanced than Bordiga, especially concerning, like, anti-fascism and stuff like that. Well, it really depends on the topic. Like, I think both of them are very inconsistent. And um... I think on unions, Bordiga's interesting. And I think Bordiga's the interesting part of this. Let's see, because he um his critique of Proudhon and his critique of Sorel and his critique of kind of a factory socialism, I think, is interesting. Yeah, and I think ultimately he is right that you can't take party and state out of Marxism. I agree with that. I just don't think he actually proves very effectively his point in this essay necessarily. Well, he just argues. He argues that, like, basically, like the entire concept of autonomy and all that stuff is basically just stems from the petty bourgeois, like, in, like and, infecting, like, the yeah. proletarian movement, essentially. Yeah, being an individual or being a human or having a personality or 
Right. Yeah. All that is, all that is Borg. Freedom. Putting yeah. the Borg in Borg Diga. Boom. <laughs> well, there are, there are some pretty, there are some good quotes in here. I like this yeah. one where it says, Proudhon, the precursor of the worst aspects of today's fashionable factory socialist. The rejection of the party and state because they create leaders, chiefs and power brokers who, due to the you know, the uh, weakness of human nature, will never be transformed into a privileged group, into the new dominant class or class, to live off of the back of the proletariat. And then, you know, he says... You know this whole argument that you know if you have organiz like if you have parties you have leaders and leaders inherently become corrupt because of human nature. That is a common like you know bullshit critique of you know the party form that you get from anarchists. And mm-hmm. Bordiga is right to say that you know well all of history is a transformation of human nature, and so you can't really say well human nature will turn you know these people into power brokers. It's plausible, though. It's plausible that without reliable, vigilant, well, without like, democracy, a- accountability. Yeah. yeah, but but there's a weird drift problem with democracy in an atomized capitalist dystopia that you know withers away democratic accountability and increases weird bureaucratic autonomy. Like it, it is a problem, and it, it can't just be swept under the rug. Well, isn't the idea that you know, the idea capitalism. that it's because of human nature is ridiculous. Well, yeah. It, does, it doesn't have to be human nature to be a problem. It just has to be how people are being sculpted by capitalism. And, like, some of the well, worst urges towards, like, being totally cutthroat in family situations, in close friendships, in every aspect of everyone's entire life. It, it's very hard to see. It's hard for me to trust someone, you know, fucking wash my back or something. It's like, well, here's 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 a question: now, Does like the super abundance of highly automated production actually resolve some of this problem? Because, you know, what's to say? Okay, you get this party; they're founded on rigid like Marxist principles, whatever. Um, but for a variety of contingent historical reasons, forced to make some kind of like strategic retreats. You know, something like the NEP, or even maybe uh, doing like conscious, like full on state capitalism, and they end up kind of like China or whatever. Could a party that was in that kind of position eventually reach a point where things were ripe enough that they could actually implement communism and would be willing to dissolve, dissolve like their own intrinsic privileges just because society was so abundant that they wouldn't really be losing that much by negating their own existence socially, if that makes sense. (laughs) See, my problem with that argument is that it just relies too much on technology as being the thing that fixes. And yeah. I mean, if, I mean, it's an attractive. It, it is basically boring, though. Let's just face it. Like, well, I mean, it, it's so funny to me because this is what drives Kamat to lose his goddamn mind. Is because if your conception of the party is a party of civil war, there's nothing quite like the softening capitalist dystopia that de-skills your ability to defend yourself psychologically or physically that resembles true domestication by technology, by a complex society, by alienated forms of authority. Like we cannot fight back in so many ways that the working classes a hundred years ago could fight back. Well, Um, yeah, we can't, this whole idea of a, you know, a civil war party, being what a party will be like today is ridiculous. I think it would be yeah. 
like we need to look more towards a mass party even the vanguard party model obviously yeah yeah militancy is is definitely the wrong way to go these no, days. i mean i think i think militancy as a civic virtue isn't completely without merits i mean i think that militancy what it means having your comrades back and having you know and staying true to the cause regardless of you know personal advances i think that is a good thing and should be you know celebrated but is Whereas, that really like militancy when it means like is that, is that really characteristic but, of a militant though um, I mean, yeah. you mean blind? Xi Jinping certainly thinks so. I mean, leading I'm a campaign saying, against corruption and uh, trying have, to. I don't. Militancy doesn't mean blind deference to authority. It means that you believe in the cause. Sometimes an authority figure can be in the way of the cause, and being a militant can be going against the authority, you know, of I someone. Mean, but that's just, this, this is going to become a semantic argument very quickly. No, no, no. no. I th- well, that's I every podcast, though. That's what we do. I, I, I don't think this is a semantic argument. I think this is a fundamental question about how we orient ourselves as communists. Because, you know, do we tighten the authoritarian butthole or do we try to, like, sort of chill out and, like, get, like engage in society as it is? Well, I don't yeah. know. I just don't, I, I don't think that I, chilling out is something that we have a trouble doing today i think <laughs> I mean, it's more discipline there it's the more disciplined tight butthole shit <laughs> that we need to get better at doing i think that's fair is but the society it's... of atomization is has a way of you know turning tight butthole authoritarianism into instruments against what we want to do sure specifically, but specifically even... what we want to do but even to have like a basic like civic association, like you have to have like you you have to have organization and people who will put their time in things and people who won't just half-ass everything. I don't I, like, of... I don't think militancy has to be a bad thing. Is all I'm saying. Like it can it can play an important role and it can I be mean, it can be a virtue that's I it think can be a virtue and not a vice. I think there needs to be like a difference between like being dedicated and being self. And zealotry because you get a lot of people who put their time and effort into activism and just go really hard at it to the point where it becomes like a weird zealot thing and you can't question what they're doing and they're just not open to other people's opinions like they get too invested in it and that it, is true yeah. but they they won't listen to anyone else's opinions and won't actually argue in any kind of good faith and that's that's a problem that you get with a lot of sex in general that you just get these people who are just like pushed into these basically activist mills and they're just pushed to like sell party papers that sort of thing useless bullshit and they right. get so deep they get so deeply invested in it they they just they just wear themselves down and well it's and then become antisocial in process in that process to become from the rest of society which is you know well i mean i think the problem with a lot of that comes down to not really having a clear idea of what you're supposed to be doing so you just kind of like flexibly repeat these rituals in the hopes Mm that somehow sort of like the the mouse who was in like cream and swam so fast it turned it into butter and then walked out of the bowl like somehow just by hard work itself will somehow magically resolve all of the problems but well you know, yeah like, that's something cool. Ortega actually he he actually personally goes against that idea in here and says 
you know, the people who think that if they just get a small, dedicated group of individuals and put their effort into it, that they can change history. You know, it's they're not paying attention to the greater, you know, balance of class forces that's really behind everything. That's what's cool about, like, reading somebody like Lenin, that you do get the sense of someone who had a very clear idea of what tasks were necessary in the particular historical moment that they were in. Doesn't that point go against his other argument about the party and the proletariat not really existing without the party? Yeah, see, the thing is, he believes that, but at the same time, he thinks that his small group of people in Italy represent the real interests of the proletariat. I mean, that is possible for that to be the case, though. Yeah, and I, I guess if you think about it, it is possible that, you know, you could say that only a minority of the class is aware of its historical interests and that, you know, as for, I, you know, that's definitely the case now. I mean, we and... should probably admit that we kind of buy that on some level, you know, I'm, Oh yeah. I, I can't go the full Bordiga, but I can say that, you know, yeah, I mean, I don't think a lot of the American proletariat think communism is in their best interest in a way and that I, think I don't really. Wrong. And I think the proletariat is hardly really a class today. Because because but, it doesn't have any collective means of acting in society, it's hard to really say that it's a class in the true Marxist sense. Because but, it's, it's truly it's, it's just a class in the sociological sense. It only exists as a class for capital. It doesn't yeah, exist as a class for itself. Yeah, they merely exist instead of existing in the form that we prefer them to exist in. <laughs> I I, I just I I get profoundly tired of that. Like we have to like look at people where they are and who they are, and um, yeah, I I don't think Marx necessarily like doesn't believe that the proletariat exists as a class without like that doesn't exist with doesn't exist without the party. Like I don't well, think what he, he says. Thought- what Marx says in Eighteen Brumaire is that the class until it has formed institutions to act politically is simply just labor power to be exploited. And it's only through coming together collectively to solve his problems that the class forms as a class. And so he, 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 I think it's better to think of it in terms of class formation or class composition yeah, and, formation. Class, and then decomposition. And so it's a dynamic process. So wherever cycles of struggles where the class will unite and become more conscious. And then, you know, those cycles will reach a, a peak to where eventually, you know, it can't go any further. But there's institutionalization and a, uh, you know, a cycle of struggles maybe against that institutionalization. And then after that, there's just simply the kind of, you know, the remnants of that last cycle. And I actually think that, like, we can look at these cycles as happening in like hundred year cycles, basically. Like I feel like Occupy in a way, it was almost just the, the, the final whimpers and cries of like the last cycle of struggles from the last 100 years, if that makes sense. Uh, it's, it's a weird theory that I just had today, but for some reason, it <laughs> reminded me of it. Well, actually, yeah. I, I, when I was going through Occupy, what it felt like was the last dying bit of the cycle of struggles that started with uh, the student revolts of 68 and that kind of thing. See, because... I'm saying like we need to look at it even further. When I, when I, when I was at Occupy, like I just felt like it was like – like the last cycle of like the drum circle that I was in, <laughs> stoned out of my mind with a Guy Fox mask on. 
the last drum circle in history. Anyway. Totally. Um, what I'm saying though is that like I think a lot of a lot of the kind of pseudo political activism today that we see is kind of just the the dying remnants of the bureaucracy that formed out of the last like big wave of class struggles. Leftovers. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's like new leftovers basically. And yeah. I, that's kind of like a lot of the people who are leading DSA, that's who they're from. And so we're kind of like living under the, the tyranny of like the leftovers of the new left who who own all the organizations and all the intellectual capital as well. You know, they're the people that huh. people will take seriously and listen to. I mean, I think I have like a problem with like the whole idea of having like a, a cycle. Like that implies a lot, really. Like yeah. you, we're, we're going to have like another rise in like class consciousness. I mean, yeah, it does imply that. Yeah. How do you know that really for certain? Maybe you're just seeing a pattern that's not actually there. Well, it's a it's a guess. Story a story of my life. Yeah, I mean yeah. it's 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 a gamble. You're not you can't be one hundred percent sure. But like, are you gonna are you gonna gamble on the other side and say, well, it's over? The red flag came down over the Kremlin tonight as President Gorbachev resigned and brought to an end seven decades of communist rule in the Soviet Union. Out with the old, in with the new. Russia's trickler tonight replacing the red flag over the Kremlin. A country renamed and reborn, and now in the hands of Boris Yeltsin. It's over, isn't it? The Soviet isn't Union, it? as a subject of international and geopolitical reality, it's over, no longer exists. You know, there is a great irony at work in the fact that maybe Fukuyama has won. It's over, isn't Why can't I? Liberal but isn't the irony that those communists who are still in power, but who are not like just lunatics like North Korea and so on, and those communists who are still in power as communists, China, uh, Vietnam and so on, are more and more appearing as the most efficient managers of global capitalism, you know. To try to predict human affairs is totally hopeless. Uh, it's a much too complicated business to predict. It's the kind of thing you try to do something about, you know, predict. We've been through periods. This is not the first period of the kind we are now experiencing. I mean, it's never identical to what happened before. But there is a kind of a cycle. Uh, there's a, there, uh, you look through history of the United States and England, the two most advanced societies, democratic societies since the early 1820s, there have been repeated periods uh, which have been called, have been hailed, you know, as the end of history, utopia of the masters, the people are driven down into apathy and cynicism, the guys who ought to own the place run everything, perfection has been reached. Uh, the first such period was in England in the 1830s. In the United States, which had a much harsher history in this respect, uh, the 1890s were a period of real violent repression. They're called the gay 90s, and they were gay for some people, uh, but not for working people in Western Pennsylvania, for example. Okay, uh, by the 1920s, it really looked perfect. 
that's when labor was completely smashed. Uh, you couldn't have meetings, I mean, but it looked like perfection, finality, end of history, wonderful. Uh, ten years later, the whole thing blew up. Uh, workers are taking over factories, I mean, that's half a step before kicking out the bosses altogether and just running them. By the 1950s, it looked like it was back in shape again. That was a period of quiescence, you know, very little happening. People are cynical and apathetic, end uh, of ideology, it was called in those days. 1960s, everything blew up again. Well, it's a repetition, you know, it's not the first time. So where's it going to go next? Your guess is as good as anyone else's. Uh, you can just say that, yes, we're back in another familiar period, and it could lead to something like, you know, the movements of the 60s and the 30s, or it could lead to fascism. I mean, you know, because I mean, you see cycles exist throughout history, back, they go back what, before capitalism. Like, but you see the peasant revolts in the 15th century around the time that capitalism rises, and you see the, the rise of, you know, mercantile commune city-states. But they, what would, <clears throat> okay, sorry. but what would separate something like that from, say, like decadence theory that the ICC pushes? necessarily like that sort of grand historical schemes that you constantly criticize online well, well i'm just I, I don't think it's a grand historical scheme i'm just saying that there's there's cycles of 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 the proletariat where the proletariat forms as a class and then deforms and then reforms again basically and that there's i don't see i i mean you, you can look at other examples historically of that happening and i guess you could say well there's the chance that it won't happen again but I, I just don't see any reason to assume that as the case. Well, I think the big difference, too, is that as opposed to like the ICC, where that's kind of like set doctrine, this is just a thought that Donald had in the shower this morning. So Yeah, this is just me shooting. I'm because sorry. I was thinking about like the difference between like the English, like how long was between the English Revolution and the French Revolution? And, you know, if you look at it, it's like almost 150 years, you know, 140, 30 years or so. And so it's really like that entire struggle for world republicanism to, to take hold took like a, a lot of multiple trial and errors attempts or a lot of attempts to overthrow monarchies and create something new that failed before you finally had a republic. And so I don't see why a dictatorship of the proletariat wouldn't be any different, where over the course of possibly hundreds of years, there will be attempts by the proletariat to, you know, form a, a worker state and form socialism, and that will fail. And it might be hundreds of years later before there's even an attempt again. Because, you know, if the bourgeois revolutions were separated by hundreds of years, I don't see why different waves of proletarian revolutions wouldn't be set, couldn't possibly be separated by that long. So I guess I am talking in like a grand historical sense, but I think there is a, a value to thinking in that way. Uh, I mean, whatever flaws there are in, in that particular analogy, because you know we did, you know, we don't have any successful proletarian revolutions, truly to speak of. Like, um, I do take Donald's ultimate point that there are historical dynamics like this that emerge and reappear, and the question is really. I, to ref, maybe reframe Rose's concern is how can we be sure that we've really captured, you know, the essence of the historical contradiction and like, you know, e even if class is really the motor of history and, and the, 
the thing underlying it all. It may not manifest in obviously class ways. It likely won't manifest in a worker's thing. Like, it, you know, it's even if it is about class in the future, people will probably think of it differently than that. Yeah, I think there's a difference than uh, I think there's a difference between saying history is like motivated much of like history is defined by class struggle and saying that history goes in like cycles and that sort of thing. Like that's kind of vaguely Spangler esque. I know you're specifically just talking about like proletarian. Well, not just proletarian struggles. You're talking about revolutionary waves in general. Yeah. I'm talking about like revolutionary waves in general. Generally like revolutionary waves can be separated by, tons and tons of years through the blind alleys in history and so there there can be you know historical factors that are unprecedented that can prevent you know the natural outburst of proletarian revolution even though the objective class antagonism is still there you know because class still exists there still is an exploiting and exploited class these classes objectively exist but you know, I still feel like, you know, the proletariat is, is basically been declassed because it has no, you know, there's, there's no institutions through which it can collectively act. But the thing is that through struggling, the proletariat does develop these institutions. And so I feel like, you know, we should look at, we should look at the entire history of capitalism, basically, and, and, as, and look at how there are different periods of the proletariat's class struggle in different areas and how there's recessive and then dominant eras, I guess. I want to talk a little bit about because he seems to find a like state capitalism. Right, um, right. And I think it kind of hinges Walter's arguments against a lot of because he runs out these scenarios of what would happen if people who want to emphasize trade union struggle got their way, blah, blah, blah. And it seems like a lot to me, like a lot of his hinge criticisms here hinge on the idea that if you did X, there would still be exchange, therefore value in money, and thus capitalism. But yeah, he kind of um, has a communizer. <laughs> anyway, what were you saying? I mean, that was it. That just didn't seem correct to me uh, because it yeah. seemed like it seemed like very like he even, he even described it as like reducto ad absurdum, but then blamed the people who were arguing at against for that problem. Well, I think his point is that like what Proudhon and what Sorel and what the syndicalists argue for and like what like the whole idea of localized decentralized communes is that if you don't have a central body doing planning there's no recourse to distribute resource other resources other than through exchange and so basically saying like your ideal model utopian societies are just agree like you're not actually moving beyond the merc because he says mercantile sometimes instead of capitalism and so i think he's kind of this makes a distinction between the two where mercantile is just like market and commercial whereas capitalism is an entire mode of production and he's saying that you have to get rid of all mercantile elements and so you know these aspects still have mercantile elements I can see. I can see what you're saying. It's sort of communizer in a sort of value form sort of way. But in another way, these very sections strike at the heart of what communizers argue, especially politically, and to some extent economically. Like to to the extent that communizers start arguing for relocalization 
of food production or delinking. You know, certainly Bordiga has no truck with that. Um, he I don't doesn't know. Yeah. want the redundancy say, of labor under you know food relocalization. Yeah. He hates localization. Like, he's very just like yeah, local production for local use is not communism. That has no communism. It's petty bourgeois and backwards. I mean, I will say though, I don't. As re- towards the end, he actually imagines like the dictation of the proletariat in terms of consumption, and just kind of sounds like war communism. I'm just gonna yeah. read a thing here real quick, where he goes, "Our conception of a dictatorship over consumption, i.e., the first stage, which will be followed by a social species rationality, entails this: on each coupon, there will not be written so much, so many currency units, which can be converted to anything, say, just tobacco and alcohol, and no bread and milk." But names of specific wares, as in the famous wartime ration cards. Uh, yeah. So basically, yep. <laughs> it's that like basically you get like under the dictatorship of the proletariat, you get like coupons for each like commodity you want you want to buy. But that just that sounds like extremely dated because there's like so many different like commodities now. Like, yeah, how would it you... sounds like war communism. Well, yeah, like... it's the beginning there. Oh, uh, actually, in the in like the. F- what was the other one that we linked? I forgot um, the uh, name the, of the uh, other immediate one. program of the revolution. Yeah, in the immediate program of the re- revolution, he talks about like luxury goods not being produced under the dictatorship of the proletariat, which I don't think he means entire. I could be misreading it entirely. Like, it's just weird. Like who decides what's not? You know, okay, it's... so here's what it says. Um, a reduction in the mass of what is produced through an underproduction plan, quote, which is to say the concentration of production on what is necessary as well as an, quote, authoritarian regulation of consumption, quote, by which the promotion of useless, damaging, and luxury consumption goods is combated and activities which propagate a reactionary mentality are violently prohibited. Yeah, that sounds really bad. Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's people it's, like... <laughs> People it's, are like, why do you call communizers pull pots? But it's like, <laughs> oh, come on. You can't like, say that just nothing. sounds like, yeah, we're all going to be walking around in, like, like, woolen sacks. And just, like, eating potatoes and, like, water. Yeah. yeah. We'll all be yeah. in the rice fields. But, but at or, least there's or, not freedom and democracy in... <laughs> yeah, thank God. I'll That's tell you what, they, they will probably phase out fidget spinners. So, I mean, we should maybe th- focus on the things we hate that they'll be getting rid of. <laughs> but, yeah, I feel like uh, this is where Bordigo loses me is where he has these ideas suppressing the value form immediately after seizing power. Yeah, this this is actually why I say this is why I said St- Bordiga is actually a worse theorist than Stalin because Stalin is incompetent. Stalin is incredibly incompetent as a theorist. Like he has no grasp on what he's doing. But he doesn't come to these horrifically weird and just horribly unpleasant conclusions. No, no, from... you know, I, you know, you know what, you know what? No, Bordiga is doing Stalin's work. Bordiga is an openly totalitarian Leninist Marxist. He's like, yes, I am a totalitarian, and this is totalitarianism <laughs> yeah. is totally sweet, and we gotta it's so do it. So edgy, I just can't stand it. Like he just takes it. He takes his theory. He takes his theory to the worst possible conclusions, and that. That's what makes him worse than Stalin as a theorist. Like, I appreciate him as, like, a historical figure in opposition to Stalin and, you know, some of his stuff on, like, the the divide between city and the co- town and country is interesting. 
seems interesting but this sort of stuff is like this is this is worse than stalin stalin stalin's most brilliant idea was to collectivize the peasantry yeah, I, I'm, I'm, like not, most no, I'm not saying idea. Stalin. Well, see, the, the, the problem is Bordiga's most critique of Stalin is that he didn't like collectivize them enough. Okay. <laughs> like, oh, like basically, is what Bordiga's critique basically like because like it's he thinks that Stalin his problem was that he didn't truly abolish capitalism, but it's like can you really say that Stalin's problem was that he wasn't anti-capitalist <laughs> enough? <laughs> it just doesn't seem like a very like realistic critique of Stalin. Like, oh, Stalin's problem wasn't was was that he didn't collectivize the peasantry enough. But it's like, <laughs> no, he collectivized the peasantry too much. Like, yeah, yeah, we needed more dead bodies. That's what but, we actually needed. Here's what he says. In the concluding pages of our study of Russia's political and economic structure, we developed the point that even during the first lower stage, the mercantile limitations of commodity production are overstepped. No longer can anything be acquired by an individual and bound to his person. Or Instead, he is entitled to a non-permanent, non-cumulative coupon, which allows him a time-limited consumption and which is awarded to him within still restricted, socially calculated limits. Yeah, like this is why I'm on team time chits. Like, team time yeah. chits. Yeah, I'm I, I'm definitely more in favor of uh, lower stage Goethe critique. Marx is like here, like here's your you know labor hours for working. Good job. Here's a gold star. Yeah. <laughs> like, well, no, like, I'm on team time chit. I mean, it's it's there's debate about how much like Marx actually was furious about time chits and that, but I don't know. It, it makes a hell of a lot more sense than this, at least. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's it is important to have the critiques of non-markets of of market socialism, and to clarify that socialism is not a market society, and that this whole idea of like oh socialism means factory to the worker, land to the peasant, means workers control of production, it's just you know, those are just simply incorrect definitions of communism. Yeah, but you know, like, I think what Borg is really going after is the idea. Socialism means everyone gets paid the full value of their labor. And he is strong on that. He is yeah, strong on that critique. And the thing is, capital is basically a big polemic against that idea. The, the problem that. is, though, is trying to imagine okay, it's not mercantile. Cool. We got it. Trying to imagine precisely what form this takes because it's going to be a, it, it'll, it, he literally says it will inform one social mass. It's going it to be a mass. It definitely seems like doubling down on all the Lasallian elements of Leninism in terms of how to organize communism. It's, who cares if the workers are or you know actually organizing it or democracy? We just need it centralized. So that sounds like full Lasallian nationalization. Yeah, yeah he, doesn't, he doesn't seem to actually have any like key into like the logistics of planning. Yeah, he just yeah. says this is what communism is. The party is like the social brain. It's the party is literally like that meme of that dude with like the giant brain that he sits on or whatever. Yeah, the, like the, that's what it takes. Like, man, the Bordigas are gonna hate us for this episode. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. in I mean, terms of social they... brain, like there is I, basically in this totally atomized setting that we're in, what we are left with is basically like research collectives, and you know, media collectives like us. What I just want to do with this podcast is I just want to go point by point and like find a way to systemically alienate anyone who might still be listening to this. Yeah. And then we'll yeah. set up a Patreon. 
Yeah, so we like, should just have like an episode and just call it "fuck you, Stephen." Quit commenting on our <laughs> shit. <laughs> Come back, Stephen. Sorry, Stephen. The show by the end of the by the end of like the next podcast, we'll have like a negative view count. Like yeah. somehow, somehow we'll have like some kind of negative view count. All right, is that? Is there any other thoughts on Vortigo, or can we wrap this up? We're we're at about an hour. Do we have anything um, nice to say? Hold on. Spaghetti there was one spice? quote by Vortigo that I there's one I thought that was kind of funny where he says, "Either we read history as Marxist, or we relapse into scholastic masturbations, which explain great <laughs> events as due to monarchical maneuverings over hereditary claims and transmission of the crown to heirs, or as the exploits of dashing buccaneers." And, uh, and that's pretty much the quote, but I just thought it was a kind of a funny takedown of like great man theory of history. Yeah. I like, I think when you do kind of like broad strokes about this guy, we like that he argues against localism, we like that he emphasizes the dictatorship of the proletariat, we like that he is, you know, willing to grapple with the questions of power. Um, but, you know, what ske- seems to sketch us out here is the sort of doctrinaire aspect anti-democratic aspect um sort of a creep this kind of like latent authoritarianism is kind of under is 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 like over emphasis on like political determinism i would say it's kind of the balance sheet of vortiga but you know we kind of hate everybody except for marx so yeah yeah we should have read something about organic centralism because well he doesn't really have anything where he straight up explains organic centralism that's the problem like is that it's just like it's, a vague concept that's referenced throughout his works yeah it's probably it's probably free of gmos probably uh pesticides yeah we ought to read like kamat on organization or something in order to oh, flesh God. that out <laughs> oh, no. that's it for this week if you need to get a hold of us you can email us at swampsidechats at gmail.com If you'd like to support the show, you can leave us a good review on iTunes or like our Facebook page. So until next time, keep your boots clean, your feet out of the swamp, and your head in the revolutionary clouds of tomorrow.